I think I will walk across Iceland, I had said, cautiously, just to a few friends. This was a handful of years ago now, almost in the distant past. It took enough work to find out whether or not the 500k route I'd be attempting was theoretically possible. But finally I made an itinerary and left the city on a day that according to local folklore was particularly auspicious for making a long trip. Departing Reykjavik, I was to pass through Mosfellsheithi. Nowadays a main road runs through it. But this name, Mosfellsheithi, evokes a sense of unoccupied land. As far as I can tell, the toponym comes from the Icelandic words for three common features in the landscape there. Moss, mountains, heath. Within the valley, occasional paddocks formed a patchwork with the darker green, more scrubby heathland, with few trees appearing and vegetation reaching up to the knees at most. It had nutrient-poor, peaty soil, and most plant life would struggle to grow there. But it was also a landscape where many stories had been born. This was the home valley of a man named Egil Skatlagrimsson who had lived over a thousand years before that first visit of mine to Iceland. I'd read his life story in Egil's saga, in which his CV was described like this. A killer, drunkard, miser, poet, wanderer and farmer. I had learned rather quickly from his saga that Egil was big and boorish and ugly, but he had also been a keen wordsmith. As a young lad, he'd brawled with his mates, killed some of them, and then went on a boozy trip to Norway as an apprentice to a sailing ship. But this was just the beginning. The saga of Egil Skatlagrimsson is a pretty eventful tale. Despite all of his hideous qualities, including his face as the saga continues to describe his ugliness, despite all this, Egil's skill with language kept him from being made completely an outsider. While he would sometimes act as if he had no intelligence whatsoever, every so often he produced a poem that seemingly redeemed him in that medieval Icelandic society. You can't say he's exactly likeable, but perhaps Egil was more like the mad genius, the out-of-control rock-and-roll star of his era. Somehow he lived to an old age. But even as a senior citizen, Egil Skatlagrimsson failed to be a good community member. In his final days, he decided he wanted to take some money he'd saved up and throw it into a public gathering, hoping to cause havoc. His family managed to stop him before he did this. So instead, Egil went out onto Mosfell's Heathy one summer morning, beyond the eastern boundary of the farm where he was living out to a precipitous gully. And there it is said he dumped the silver coins into the creek. Or else it is said that he threw the treasure into some deep swamps at Mosfell. Or else beyond the rivers to the south where there are hot springs with big pits nearby 
These at least were the theories of some centuries ago. Passing through the valley myself on a bright day many years later, my eye was caught several times by shards of light glinting in the landscape. But these were just puddles, or glassy drops of quickly cooled volcanic rock. Alas, I had no time to dilly-dally looking for ancient treasure. It was autumn in Iceland, and every day I was losing more and more daylight. I had many kilometres to cover, and to start with I had to cross Mossfell's Heathy and find a place to pitch my tent. As I got to the edge of the heath, I found myself on a lava field. The entire landscape was made up of warm brown stone, jumbled together in unusual formations. Here was the continental divide. The tectonic plates of North America and Europe were slowly separating here, a rift in the surface of the planet. But far from being the harsh country that this might make it sound, the place was softened by large beds of grey moss, interspersed with lichens and herbs and wild blueberries, with small sweet fruit growing under the leaves. For the next few weeks, moss would be at the base of the landscapes all around me. And in memory, these have become more valuable to me than silver coins. Forty-odd years ago, a small group of people decided to buy this old train carriage and lug it up into the hills. And so here it is, decorated with flaky red paint, set down among the shades of green of this Tasmanian forest. In some respects, it's the strangest place I've ever rented. On the other hand, I feel that my lifestyle fits it perfectly. And the fact that I've stayed here now for three and a half years suggests that I kind of like it. For those keeping score at home, it still has no electricity or hot water. Just a solar light, a two-burner gas cooker, a camp shower, a cast-iron wood stove. I keep the doors open almost always. 
and so in spring and summer, skinks and piss ants have the run of the place. And now that it's cooler, the carriage seems to belong to moths as much as it does to me. I'm in no hurry to live any place else. And perhaps that's the perfect phrase for it. No hurry. For after nearly a century of rushing around, this train carriage has no itinerary. It's retired, immobile, stationary. It's still waterproof, mostly, and structurally sound. But bits and pieces of the old girl are starting to look a little in disrepair. There are timber boards that gently rot, and in turn there are trees that threaten to grow through the walls. One can easily imagine the forest slowly claiming this strange, out-of-place carriage, like a mining town or a Mayan temple. But the bush isn't in a rush either. Most of it anyway. The bracken and blackberries are fairly fast-paced. But some of these trees might have centuries ahead of them. They operate on a different time scale. And of course there are the lichens and mosses which gain territory incrementally, travelling inches each decade. If you ask me, they set an impressive pace. Admirably slow, in a way that's matched by no human life I know. A rolling stone, you may have heard, gathers no moss. That phrase has been in circulation for centuries. It was perhaps first spoken in classical Latin. And when you think about it, you can read a fair bit into it. I think originally this cliché was a criticism of those who didn't set down roots, who didn't follow tradition, who didn't stick to the habits of their community. So the metaphorical covering of moss was seen as a moral virtue. It was the bare rock that couldn't stick to anything that was an anomaly, that stuck out like dog's nuts and couldn't be trusted. But I get the feeling that these days the connotation has changed. The motionless rock that lets the moss creep and crawl all over it might be seen as lazy or dull-witted or old-fashioned. That old boulder won't be able to keep up with trends or know what's happening in the world. Meanwhile, the rapid-paced rolling stone isn't going to be caught up in any vegetative growth. It zigs and zags and stays fashionable, well-dressed, not in the daggy old green rags on the rocks that will no doubt be left behind, passé. People used to mistrust those who moved around a lot, if only because they liked to know their neighbours. They might need to rely on them one day. But now it's almost seen as virtuous to hop between social groups, homes, jobs. It certainly fits in well with the rhythms of capitalism. Stationary stones contribute so little to the economy.
Actually, much of my life these days has been a rolling stone. Curiosity draws me to all corners of my island, and work as well. Not a week goes by without a road trip. I don't seem to be able to help it. And in truth, I'm grateful for the mobility, for the chance to see new places and meet new people. But sometimes, after even a few days away, I sense what I'm missing by leaving so often. It's as if by driving off, I'm tearing tufts of moss from around me, ripping the rhizoids that attach me to the bush here. Meanwhile, nearly everyone who visits me here has a suggestion as to how the carriage could be renovated to be a little better. I'm aware that my instinct to improve nothing, almost to the point of letting the carriage disintegrate around me, is not necessarily great in the long run. I almost worry that I have a pathological urge to have no impact, make no change, do no harm. And maybe that'll change in time, although it's already been three and a half years. As it stands, my philosophy is to see what I notice amid the natural processes of the forest around me, only plucking out the odd weed or burning off windfall every so often. That way the slow stuff can grow, filling gaps, finding new surfaces on which to spread. I like the spirit of the moss, its slow motion lifestyle. It grows when it can and pauses when it can't. It slowly feeds on simple substances. Some days when I pick up a book and lie in the weak autumn sunlight, I fancy myself a bit of a moss, recumbent on a substrate, taking external energy and processing it into the mere necessities of life. There is, however, another contrasting example around here. On those late nights when I'm letting dreams and starlight in through the open door of the cottage, I hear almost constant activity. And in the mornings I notice divots in the dirt, matted mosses peeled back with broken rhizoids. The southern brown bandicoots have been busy, pressing their snouts into the earth in the search for subterranean mushrooms. This time of year must be their favourite. They ferret around, sniffing out the fruiting fungi and feasting on it. When I see them, I notice their almost feverish motion, the way they twitch and scratch through life. No moss will grow on a bandicoot's back, that's for sure. It may sound silly, but every so often I yell out to them. Actually, I yak with most of the critters out here. Come on, you rummins, I shout at the bandicoots from my bed at midnight. Why don't you have a rest? But in truth, I understand their situation. Because their food is best found in openings in the bush, they need to live nocturnally. 
By day they'd face too much risk from birds of prey or even kookaburras. During the day they might find a hollow mossy log in which to get a bit of shut-eye. But for most animals the chance to rest is brief and often fraught with danger. They are rolling stones, fast and desperate. They hardly get the opportunity to appreciate what surrounds them. And incredibly, they seem never to sit down and read a book. I ought to confess that some of the nitty-gritty of plant biology eludes my comprehension. Like, when I look at a diagram of how moss reproduces, I have to scrutinise it very attentively to get the gist. And maybe there's still a moment in that sequence of events that I don't quite get. How a spore randomly crash-landing in the right place might set off a chain reaction from which a new moss plant is born. But maybe what I'm struggling to wrap my head around is life itself. Because I also find it hard to properly envision how a human is conceived. How strange it is that the complex mechanisms by which biological beings reproduce are at the very heart of existence. Anyway, I don't think I'll deliver a lecture here about how mosses are born. But suffice to say, moss didn't just get there, sprouting from the cracks in your street. It was something like 350 million years ago that some sort of aquatic alga gradually adjusted to terrestrial conditions. It was perhaps left high and not quite totally dry in a shrinking pond. Or maybe an ambitious specimen went sliding up the damp, shady crevices along a lake's rocky shore and survived as slight changes came with each generation the successful variants living to spawn again. This is one version of events anyway. As you might imagine, botanists have other guesses. Mosses leave so little material behind that scientists don't have heaps to work with. If you were to look at the bryologist's diagrams with me, you'd see a neat little layout of how mosses do it. But of course each species has its own expression of this basic template. There are variations on a theme. And over millions of years each species has adjusted its methods of procreation so that it better suits the conditions of its habitat. That's pretty much how evolution works. And moss has got such an ancient lineage that by now we must say its reproductive techniques have been effective. 350 million years is a pretty good innings on Earth. Mosses are pioneer plants. may seem odd to use such a boisterous sort of word with moss, as if they're cowboys of the Wild West. But this is how plant biologists talk about them. 
for such soft, gentle critters. Mosses are bold and hardy when it comes to colonising bare land. Colonising is another of those words which seems a bit stark in this context. Especially when we think about how mosses often form a nursery for other species. How unxenophobic they seem to be. In fact, recent research shows just how important moss species are for supporting shared ecosystems. For instance, moss does good things for soil. There's more enzyme activity, more nutrients, and fewer pathogens in soil underneath mosses. So of course other species benefit from that. And mosses encourage the sequestration of carbon. Protecting soil-borne mosses will help not to exacerbate the ecological troubles we've already set in motion. You might say, moss is good for humanity. Yet there are also pest mosses. That's right. There are introduced mosses that affect the ecosystems into which they've wheedled their way. In southern Tassie, there's currently an outbreak of neat feather moss, Pseudosclerodium purum. It has tall stems, up to 20 centimetres high, which is tall for a moss, and so it can smother ground cover and crowd out other native species. In turn, a southern hemisphere moss has proven to be a problem in parts of northern Europe. Invading dunes or on bare peat, the spread of heath star moss, Campylopus intraflexus, has had an unexpected effect. It's a deterrent for some beetles and spiders, insects which are the diet for a bird called the tawny pipit, who subsequently has lost some of its habitat. Our bloody moss may force this tawny pipit homeless. The other week I was trying to explain weeds to a friend an artist who didn't understand why we shouldn't just accept plants as beautiful and not worry about where they come from. It's a sticky wicket because words like pristine or wilderness can easily take on an undertone of human prejudice. I think that my friend, as a migrant, felt like weeds were a bit hard done by. And it's true that the other animals don't mull over the origins of the plants around them. They just suss out if those plants are immediately useful and try to adjust to whatever habitat they inherit the best they can. And the mosses that intrude in places, like other non-native species, they don't have any grand plan. They're simply following their innate tendencies, instinctively procreating, pushing their species to survive without thinking about the cost to other beings. But as humans, and especially as humans aware of how unstable our environments are, we might want to be keenly conscious of what each new alteration might bring. Weeds can destabilise the world around us, even when they're beautiful or seemingly innocent, like these mosses. Our ecosystems are, of course, irreversibly changing. I guess that mosses, as a mob, will survive what comes over the next couple of centuries. But it may be that a few will thrive and come to dominate, while others will be threatened 
and some will become extinct. The possible outcomes are various and multifaceted, and perhaps hard to predict. In Antarctica, for instance, there's a moss that may be at risk from climate change. East Antarctica is green, as it happens, and has moss growing in luxuriant bunches fertilised by penguin faeces. You'd think that glacial melt would suit mosses, releasing heaps of water and making everything moist. But actually, as the ice cap recedes away from that eastern end of the continent, some big established moss beds may become too far from that water source to survive. Perhaps my favourite moss at the train carriage is a species that grows under duress beneath the water tank. It's kind of squished in against the base of the tank stand, and it seems to permanently have red stalks growing from it, sporophytes standing upright, hoping to have a breeze come through and blow its spores to a receptive plant of the same species. I guess the fact that it's stressed by its unfortunate position means that it's pushing hard to make reproduction happen. Frankly, I think it's acting a bit desperate. Maybe it's easy to assign human feelings to this moss. Perhaps anthropomorphizing moss is a bit much, but actually, I often use my imagination in this way to connect with other species around me. That moss is a character, one of my near neighbours, someone I know. I see it as just another life on this planet, responding to some deep impulse, biological instincts, in the midst of tough circumstances. In contemplating it, I may even understand a bit more about myself. I reckon we're not so different. That moss and I. There is a short walk you can do in the Devil's Glen in County Wicklow, Ireland. In that verdant, ferny pocket of the country, there are small plaques embedded on rock faces, in which are impressed some lines from the poet Seamus Heaney, excerpts that are quite lovely disembodied from their poems, recontextualised in the grove. We come here to collect mushrooms. It helps us remember home, one reads. They say no one has ever drowned here. We have lost the dog. Meanwhile, Moss grasps at the corners of the metal plaques, 
claiming the words as their own. Seamus Heaney is a fitting poet to put in a mossy place. So much of his work mentions moss or bogs or turf, sods and spuds and frogs. They're bound to the elements of the flat, wet moors of Ireland, the countryside in which he grew up. And such landscapes are fine subjects for poems. Now I've noticed at my own poetry readings that people are sometimes intimidated or overwhelmed by the heaped-up sentences pouring forth as if they're supposed to remember every last line. And I sometimes say when I do those shows, if you walk away with one or two memorable images, it's probably been a good day. What I like best as a reader of poetry is when I receive a snippet of the spirit of a place. And so if some day a couple of people have a line of mine in their heads when they go to certain creeks or mountains, I'll feel like I've done my job as a poet. Seamus Heaney's poems have given me images of Ireland that I could never have had without reading his work. He knows moss country well. In one poem he uses the image of lumpy moss bogs oozing tannin-stained water to give us the picture of a mortal wound. In another, the body of the poet's wife, the mother of his child, is compared to the forms of a mossy mound. He mentions a bog burst, a gash breaking open the ferny bed. Maybe it sounds a bit dodgy out of context, but it's a nice poem. And the image is not too hard to imagine. Maybe these descriptions have another layer beneath them, historical pictures which fill out the metaphors. In many cultures around the world, wounded bodies have been bound with moss, including in modern wars. Likewise, moss was the original feminine hygiene product. It was harvested as an absorbent pad for menstruating women. I think of how significant moss must have been in those traditional cultures, particularly when young women reached the age of their first period. I can only come up with hypothetical scenarios, but perhaps at puberty mothers or aunties took their young'uns to mossy glades where they harvested moss species that did the job best. That species then would always stand as a landmark in life. For that is how you get to know flora. You need it. You feel it. You bring it close. You cherish it. Our lives should be made of such relationships with species. Not that I'll go collecting moss to stanch my next spear wound, but even in a modern life, using the less traditional resources that are often more suited for what we do, we surely can still include other species in the story of our growth as a person. For me, poetry has often helped to do this. So often at a certain moment in my personal history, I've scribbled up a little piece of verse in which a rosella or an arctic tern or snow fungus or a pincushion moss has represented some aspect of change, some feeling, some hope, some dream. 
Nowadays I find myself taking an edition of Seamus Heaney's poems to a moist, mossy forest along a river called the Liffey, which is not the one that runs to sea in Dublin, nor much like it, to be honest. But it's a fitting name, somehow, if only because its water is the colour of Guinness. But no, actually... It's strange how lines of poetry set in another distant location can still fit so wonderfully on my own landscapes, letting certain features come to the fore, enriching my perception of them, giving them a deeper context. Sometimes I like the slow reading of a single poem, going over and over it to see what stands out this time, trying to unpack the nuances in it, but likewise I can pick a page at random and pluck out a line of verse, read it aloud as those plaques do at Devil's Glen in County Wicklow. Our unfenced country is a bog that keeps crusting between the sights of the sun, I say, in a small clearing framed by fragile old silver wattles. Sitting on the fat root base of a slow-growing white gum I read, with time to kill, they are taking their time. And at dusk, when the kookaburras let out their ethereal calls, staking the claims of newly gained territory, I read, our island is full of comfortless noises. I hope the poems can work the other way too. I think of an acquaintance on a farm with a creek running through it, over there in Ireland. And I write these lines for him. This green velvet moss might also be seen on your river's banks. Like the leaves are in fact rivets, and the rhizoids reach through the core of the earth. So the moss fuses these two places, draws distant countries close, and mysteriously fixes the two of us together.
She told me that she thought a mossy forest was erotic. Do go on, I replied. Well, it's all these textures, she said. There's the softness, of course. The gentleness of its caress in response to ours. The feeling that it wants to embrace us. Then there's the silence. It's like this space is reserved just for us. Timeless. And the privacy. Have you not noticed that no one else can see us in here? That we're surrounded by screens of foliage and branches? That almost certainly no one will stumble upon us here in these woods? And all this is entwined with our togetherness and the transience of life. There are secrets and mysteries, things unseen. But you sense enough that the suspense stays keen. There's a certain balance, a poise that could be upset by the simplest act of chance. For the moment you keep apart. But even that is an act of complicity, a silent agreement, a shared responsibility, which is the start of intimacy. Go on, touch it, she said. Moss is a resilient, an ancient plant, but it's delicate and fragile as well. It seems too pretty for this world, without defence. And there is something to be said for the potency of that which may not last. You know what it'll be like when the loggers come, or bushfires. But for now the moss is here with us, and we are here together. Tomorrow, who knows. She looked up at me suddenly like a pink robin caught in the open. And likewise, her pretty burbling voice was now still. She gave a faint smile that conceded little. She was crouching on the hefty trunk of an old King Billy that had tumbled down decades ago. The wood had moss over almost the entirety of its surface and a number of small seedlings grew from the soft timber, several different plant species that were sprouting in the soft pulp of the slowly rotting bark. In an old forest there are overlapping lifetimes. We sometimes get to slip between the gaps in those layers, for moments at least. What'd you say? she asked abruptly. You reckon that pine over there's a thousand years old? Surely they stand at the centre of every arboreal culture. A pine is strong, symbolic, spiritual. And then there's that parrot you pointed out, its chest the colour of a species of hypnum or papillaria. And the red mushroom that grows in mossy crevices, 
the snail slinking under its curled teak shell, the filmy fern with its slimy fronds. They're all interconnected. It seems so dainty, but I declare that it's the moss that holds it all together. Because the moss has not just terrestrial concerns. Look at the feathered texture of this rhizogonium. The way it takes all the moisture from the earth and atmosphere and keeps it close. Holds it there. The leaf is coated. It sparkles. It shines. The plant invites the intimacy of the atmosphere. Wet leaves absorb more light. It takes the atmosphere then. Later, its setter will spring up, topped with a capsule that's waiting to explode. All right, she laughed. This isn't so much metaphor anymore. It's just biology. Come on, she whispered, and took my hand and we left the rainforest as if at full tilt and came upon an open moorland where moss species also sprouted. A type of sphagnum grew in an enormous yellow-orange mound. And further on, amongst a stand of gum trees, we came upon a couple-inch-long animal scat that had been entirely colonised by a moss, a species of Tayloria, she told me. Austral poop moss, they call it. Copper stalks were rising from the matted moss on that scat, bristling on math. Life was growing out of shit. We ventured back into the rainforest. She stopped suddenly, perched again on a tree trunk. I thought that she'd looked up at me again with the face of a vulnerable animal, like a pygmy possum or a paddy melon and then realised just how imperiled I must seem, hanging on her every word. But she said nothing further, which only made me cling to her presence even more. The energy now was at its most intense. Our attention was sharp, waiting for that shift in the atmosphere, for that moment of history. Silently I echoed what she had said. Erotic was her word. It was worth a second thought. Mosses make the merest layer, just the surfaces. Yet they hold much of the story of a place. Just as I was about to say this, I shifted my weight and my foot fell through a piece of rotting wood. Then she broke eye contact at last, lifted her head and laughed out loud. And now I thought that maybe the whole monologue had been a comic act. It was only then that I noticed that she had a bit of lettuce in between her teeth. Such details live long in memory. And may that mossy forest of ours live long as well.